0: Welcome to the AEM Education and Training Podcast, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa with Dr. Rory Merritt, and here's what we've got for you today.
1: Pursuing a career in medical education research can be brilliantly rewarding, but also, let's face it, really challenging, especially when it comes to turning our work into scholarly productivity. Today we are speaking with Dr. Sally Santon about asking good research questions and how working in teams can help us answer them, which is the focus of her educational download on AEM Education and Training entitled, Turning Your Educational Work Into Scholarship. As many of you no doubt already know, Dr. Santon is one of the preeminent medical education researchers of our time and a practicing emergency physician. She is a professor of emergency medicine and senior associate dean of evaluation, assessment, and scholarship at the Virginia Commonwealth University. Dr. Santon, it's a pleasure to meet you.
0: Thank you. That's a little bit of an embarrassing intro, but thank you very much.
1: Your reputation precedes you. (laughs) And I was looking at your uh, CV. It looks like we were both chief residents at uh, George Washington, Georgetown. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's great. I love that program.
1: I think we, we both were discussing earlier, we, we owe a debt of gratitude to people like Dr. Schesser, who is still uh, the chair uh, down at George Washington.
0: Yep, definitely.
1: So in your experience, what makes a good educational research question? And how do you suggest novice researchers ask better research questions?
0: I think this is the core of the work that we do, because I find that sometimes you start, on, you start on a project and then you have done all of this work and it goes out, you know, you try to send it out for publication and you get back the who cares um, issue. So choosing the right question is really, really critical. Um, when I think about this, I often go back to what's called the finer criteria. I don't know if it's actually a formal criteria, um, okay. but it is um, feasible Interesting, novel, ethical, and relevant. Um, it's. I think it's done by um, Holly. Um, but if you Google it, you can find the finer the finer questions. Um, and so the first one. The first one is: Is it is it feasible? Right. So you come up with this great idea, and and looking at it um, intentionally and saying, Can I actually answer this question in a way that will get it done in the next? six months or a year, okay. um, because if it drags on longer than that, then you probably won't um, actually get it done. So for first, is it feasible? Second, is it interesting? So interesting is one where um, I, Almost always will run questions by other people and say, "I came up with this wonky idea. What do you think?" Um, and people will look at me, and if I can't actually describe it, then I don't have a good question. But they'll actually say, "You know, I'll just I'll I'll say to somebody, you know, does this seem interesting to you?" And making sure that you're using the colleagues around you to say, "Yes, this is an interesting question," because we often find that we're interested in things ourselves that are not particularly interesting. I think, and I was just thinking, it might be helpful to give a couple of examples. That'd be great. Let me just go back to the feasibility one. So um, I'm working with a group of inter-specialty colleagues, and one of them wants to look at is a leadership course change the chief resident management for, for this specific residency program. It's not emergency medicine. And the problem with this with this one is that they're doing like two leadership sessions and then she wants to met- measure leadership two years from now when they become chief residents. As you can mm. see with that, there's not, a, there's not a strong link there. And so that's not a very good feasible one. And if you're going to wait to get your data two years from now, it's too late. Um, so not particularly feasible. Interesting. Let's, let us me think of a, an uninteresting question. So I recently uh, was the editor on a paper, and again, I'm not going to give specifics on this one, um, on a paper where the majority of the data came from a publicly available source, well, if everybody can get to that source, such as um, NRMP data, which is residency data or graduation questionnaire data about mistreatment, then it doesn't really mean much if it's not a, like it's not particularly interesting if everybody can actually see that data. Mm. Um, So just making sure that it's an interesting, an interesting question. So I have a running list of, um, I have a running list of questions where I um, will just kind of write down, here's a research question. Here's a research question. So there's a research question. And then if, if, a if, an extended period from now, that question is still on there, on my list. And I still find it interesting Then I have a lot more um, comfort that that's going to be interesting to somebody else.
1: That's a really great piece of advice too. So I'm going to, I'm going to steal that.
0: Okay. (laughs) So the third criteria is novel. um, And that also gets to the interesting thing is you got to be doing something new and different. For example, the editor of a major medical education journal um, said with a, And that wasn't exactly an eye roll, but it was like, he's like, I'm so tired of the burnout studies. Like everybody and their brother is looking at burnout. And so Ah. that says that that is not, that is no longer a novel space. Mm. The other thing with novel, and this one is particularly problematic for us educators, is that we spend so much time teaching and we say to ourselves or our chair says to us, well, can't you publish that, right? You know, I'm doing all of this teaching on central line placement and simulation. You know, I'm spending hours and hours and hours doing training my residents on how to do that. Can't you publish? No, is the <laughs> answer. Is with a lot of these is that, I mean, there are so many central line studies that you can't. There's so many burnout studies. you got to be really careful. And so the, the novel piece of this is interesting. My work around on this one is that If you take a conceptual framework or an educational theory from another um, domain and -hmm. apply it to work that we do normally, like the simulation, these things we do all the time didactic lectures, etc., then with that new lens, you can often get things published you know, everybody's doing ultrasound training, right? So there's, you know, tons of faculty spending hours and hours talking about ultrasound and teaching ultrasound, yet it's hard to publish in that area because it's really a Mikey likes it and we're doing it. So the lens that has not really been applied to that is um, spatial visual perception. And so my understanding is that in the probably engineering literature, um, or in, in, in different literature, there is there are measurements of how you are spatially inclined. And so is there a way to teach ultrasound to people who are not spatially inclined? Hmm. And so one might overlay like a measurement of spatial inclination on top of your learners and then teaching them ultrasound and then ways to kind of get around it.
1: I think that makes a lot of sense to, take, to really try to look at it from a different perspective and even looking outside the fields of, of medicine or emergency medicine.
0: Okay, so that's novel. Um, The other finer criteria are relatively easy. So it's ethical, you know, you got to do your IRB and do things that are right. And the other one is relevant. So it should be relevant to what we're doing. And that's kind of an overlap. So those are the finer criteria. And so I think when I'm thinking about a research question, that's, that's how I approach it. And you can also see I kind of approach it in a collaborative way in terms of, I probably talk about a question to 10 or 15 people before I ever embark on doing it um, because I need that input to help me get it better. And, and, and I've been doing it for a long time and I still do that.
1: Well, that's a really perfect segue because I was hoping to shift gears and talk a little bit about teamwork. Emergency physicians are, are used to working in teams in the department, but working in teams involving educational research can perhaps present its own challenge and opportunities. So as a frequent research team leader and question asker, can you share some insights into high functioning research teams?
0: Ooh. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, So I've had some high-functioning ones and some not high-functioning ones. And so I think it's kind of comparing and contrasting those two. Sure. At least relevant to emergency medicine, when I was at University of Michigan, we had a medical education research group. And we actually published about our kind of experience and outcomes. It's in Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and for details, or if you're not kind of understanding what I'm saying, you can actually go back to that paper. There's a couple of things that made that group particularly effective. We had monthly meetings, didn't always make them more, make them interesting. Um, but but for the most part, we had regular meetings. We had multiple projects going at the same time so that the group published as a group frequently Mm -hmm. and that there was a certain accountability. And so one person would be a lead on one paper and a middle on another paper, but that we all kind of informed and worked as a group. Now, not everybody in the, in, it was called Merg, in the Merg group published in every paper, but in general, our research teams were probably six to eight people. And as a result, multiple people were publishing. Um, the other thing that we did is we created a culture in the residency and students from the whole education section that whenever we made a change we said we said oh we need to study this right we need to collect the data and analyze it so for example when milestones first came into effect Um, like when the ACGME said, here, you will do, thou shalt do milestones, (laughs) we immediately jumped on that and said, Huh? Well, what can we do? What can we? We're going to have to go to milestones. What can we do to understand this a little bit better? And there's a series of papers that came out of that line of inquiry. Um, and so almost at, you know almost every time we we did that, um, you know they changed their whole didactics thing. There's a paper that's going to come out on that. The medical school decided that they were going to unblind the medical student assessment forms. And so um, there's a paper on that. And so it it was really very intentionally anytime there was a change saying, is this change interesting to others and generalizable and what can we do to study it? Um, So I think that's an important part of a team. I think the other thing, and I think I do this and I've been trying to do it with other groups and and some people like it or don't like it, um, meaning that it's a little bit difficult. When we're writing as a team, I will say, you know, one person gets to write the intro, someone else is writing the methods and results, and somebody else is writing the discussion. And so that you've got three or four people all writing at the same time. The reason I do that is because I think that when you look at a blank piece of paper, people struggle with writing and that to write the whole paper, they get very kind of like, oh, I just can't, I I can't sit down and make myself do it. But when I say to them, you know, um, I need two paragraphs on um, resident response to mistreatment, then, um, Hmm. you know, as a resident, please write me two paragraphs on how you feel about mistreatment. Then it's easy to get two paragraphs because anybody can do that. Now the quality of that is often not, high, but, but and so you simply throw it back to them and say, you know, more reference here, have you thought about this? And in the end, some people argue that it's a lot more work on the primary author's point, because if you don't consolidate the voice, you don't have a, a coherent paper. Um, but personally, I, I like doing that because I feel like it 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 trains the, the, the novice investigators to um, to learn to write and to feel comfortable writing, not that anybody feels comfortable for a while, but it also engages people so that they are writing so that when you're putting people as an author, they've actually done something. Um, the trick with that is you've got to get to the coherent voice at the end, and you've got to, and the people who are writing have to also understand that. So so personally, with many of the, co, the team members I'm working with, I'm actually out of track changes um, because I don't want them to be Um, hurt um, by the major edits that I'm doing. Um, And I honestly think that it doesn't really help them if it's a, if it's a more advanced team member. So if I'm a senior author and I am rewriting the primary author's work, then I will sometimes put it in, try on, I'm actually much more likely to put it on track changes. So a, a, a more novice, um, person, even probably a competent writer, I will be out of track changes because it, it doesn't matter. And they're not going to actually incorporate, like, I can't give them the thought process that to help them understand how it is different. And for them to see all the track changes, it's just going to feel like, oh, I can't write. And that's not what I'm trying to say. Whereas if it's a higher level person, then I will put it on track changes. And if it's a really high level person, I don't edit at all. I simply say, hey, consider this or whatever, whatever. Does that make sense?
1: I think your tiered approach makes a lot of sense. That's a really good insight. That was really helpful. Uh, Can you share any closing thoughts with us for any novice educational researchers out there or perhaps even for researchers who might be further along in their career?
0: Yeah. So I think um, I think the key, and you actually asked the question, is is the team, right? Mm. Is that um, a single person asking their own question usually doesn't it ends up at stupid. Um, <laughs> and so I think it's really really important to have a group of people who you can talk to and a team around you. And if if you're in an institution that doesn't have deep educational expertise to be using your Personal learning network, or create a personal learning network to get help. And so, there's a number of us who are kind of um, senior educators who are happy. Like, I love actually doing educational consults um, because I love like fighting with somebody's question for an hour, hmm. and then I get to hand it back to you, and I don't have to touch it again because it's then your problem. And and so, reaching out to people of similar, um, um, similar expertise and saying, hey, can I, can I run this by you? Do you mind helping me? And using that as your personal learning network to make your work better. Um, I think that's probably the kind of the most important thing is it's all about the team and the other people.
1: Well, those are great words to close on. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. This was fun. Thanks for listening to this AEM Education and Training podcast. Be sure to hit the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Subscribe on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.